0: Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 12 for a few minutes. We're to section number three of the last four sections of this chapter. The next section is two verses long. It's verses 42 and 43. We have had one category that has been mentioned in verses 37 and 38. Though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. And two prophecies are brought forward from Isaiah explaining why. And now we have this group. Verse 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Nevertheless, This is the most difficult verse of this passage because of the use of the word nevertheless and the use of the word also in the first clause of verse 42. We've got to make a decision. To draw a contrast is what the use of nevertheless is for. To draw a contrast with what went before. So God inspired a disjunctive nevertheless, which puts this group at opposition to something in some way. Is the contrast between these so-called believers and the earlier unbelievers of verse 37? If so, then these were believers in some sense that the earlier group of men were not. Is the contrast between these so-called believers and the inability to believe in verses 39 and 40 by prophecy? If so, then these believers were able to believe in some sense beyond the belief denied. We choose to understand this section to be another category of unbelievers, like before. Jesus and John stated unbelief was a problem before and after this section. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 44. Jesus is not going to respond, I am so thankful for all you many chief rulers that believe on me. He is going to declare that for three reasons they better believe on him because they're not believing on him. And he's going to tell them why they ought to believe on him. John used the adverb also. That also, and you want to look for also's because also's comparing two things. This is true also, this over here. And so we've got an also which compares things and nevertheless draws a contrast between things. John used the adverb also here, joining two things, the unbelievers and the believers. Then how in the world are they called believers in the first group called unbelievers? Because it was just mental assent on their part, because it wasn't real belief. And that's why we have the word but. But they wouldn't confess him, because they'd be thrown to the synagogue. That's why we have the next verse that tells us they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Real believers aren't described that way anywhere in the Bible. The first disjunctive, nevertheless, should not cause us to miss the second one of but, in the middle of verse 42. That middle but, but because of the Pharisees, which shows that they were not real believers or disciples in any meaningful way, because Jesus has has defined real belief and real discipleship throughout the pages of all four Gospels. If a man will not hate this and that and this and that and this and that to follow me, if a man will not hate his own life, a man will not take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. So we're going to we're gonna run into the teeth of everything else Jesus taught and what the rest of the New Testament teaches if we just go ahead and assign election to all of these and call them unconverted elect. I don't do that. And I don't care who does it. I know that those who do do it don't care about souls, don't evangelize, and end up with most of the world on the way to heaven. To varying degrees. Some of them, all men are going to heaven, and they're universalists. The Primitive Baptists called them no hellers. There was a segment of the Primitive Baptists, no hellers. Hell is just not being, having practical salvation in this world. That sounds just like Robert Schuller and his crystal cathedral, who said that hell was living this life without self-esteem. Because universalism and getting rid of hell is the fastest-growing doctrine in America. For good reason. I would love to jump on their bandwagon. I hate the thought of hell. Don't you? But we're going to go with the word of God. These aren't real believers, but it says they're believers. Aha. Aha. Have you read anything or listened to anything since John chapter 1 until now? Because from John chapter 1 until now, we have met several, uh, four or five, categories of believers that weren't really believers. All they had was mental assent. Jesus would not commit himself to them. Jesus would not teach them further. Jesus would withdraw from them and hide from them. And this group, look at how he responds. He cries out. And, tells, ...and commands belief, and that if they don't believe on him, they're rejecting God as well... ...in the very next verse of the contextual arrangement that the Holy Spirit has given us. The first disjunctive, nevertheless, should not cause us to miss the second one of the word but. But they had this limitation, and they had this limitation. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue... So they didn't want to lose their place in organized religion. For, and explains their heart motive, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now tell me about a work of grace in a person's life that loves the praise of men more than the praise of God. Neither should we ignore the conjunctive for, which I just mentioned in the next verse of 43. Therefore, we take the unbelievers in 1237 to have mental assent also without faith. But they're called unbelievers there, and they're called believers here in verse 42. Because we have that word also. You say, well, that, sound, that makes it kind of confusing. Does it really? He's telling you that believers can be unbelievers. And unbelievers can be believers if the belief is only mental assent and not truly embracing Jesus Christ and committing your life to discipleship to follow him. If we take this passage the way that you would the way that some might want to take it then we end up with all these unconverted elect all over the place that love the praise of men they don't really fear God and they don't want to be tossed to the synagogue they love their denominational system more and I'm not going to do it. The nevertheless shows that some rulers had mental assent but would not follow him. Well they could not believe in any real and true way they could give mental assent The devils give mental assent to Jesus Christ. They give him total mental assent. But it doesn't mean anything about eternal life. And we're not supposed to have faith like theirs. And where the contrast is drawn in James chapter 2, it says faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. So we don't go around giving real faith. And I want to use the, the words that are about to come out of my mouth, I'm using very carefully because the Reformed churches use them too loosely. Saving faith. Faith that proves eternal life changes lives. Jesus is going about to explain it in the f- verses that follow. You know, if you're not convinced yet, you can talk to me later. You can look at the outline. You can read through this passage, and I want you to deal with two things. I want you to deal with nevertheless, and I want you to deal with also to start off in the first clause. Then you've got to deal with the but, which is another disjunctive in the middle of verse 42, and then you've got to deal with the connecting, co- coordinating conjunction of four in verse 43 because you've got people that we shouldn't give eternal life to at all because they don't meet the criteria of the New Testament. Right. We must stick with scriptures about real faith rather than multiply unconverted elect. Right. John's already taught us that. Where did John teach us that? Well, he taught it to us in John chapter 2, the last three verses. John chapter 6, with the whole crowd that was following him, oh, they were pursuing him aggressively. They wanted him, they wanted to make him king because he had fed them. John chapter 7, John chapter 8, If can, cont- it says a group believed on him. Jesus turned to that group that believed on him and said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We've never been in bondage to any man. He... he he provoked them just a little bit in what was said about believers, mental assent. This could be the Messiah. This is the Messiah. Who cares if you think he is the Messiah, but you're not going to change your life to follow him in discipleship? Right. Listen, if we were to walk down the street right now, downtown Greenville, and ask them, Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? How many of them are going to say no, but a few nutcakes? Does that mean they're all going to heaven? But they're believers. Are we going to come back and report that many more people are in the book of life because of our effort downtown? Don't want to... I'm just trying... I want to be fair with the word of God and understand what John has taught us before we even get to this verse. And what he's taught us is that there are believers that aren't real believers. There are believers that give mental assent to him as a great prophet, a great man, even the Messiah of Israel, but they're not willing to change their lives and follow him. They are not willing to take persecution... They're not willing to do the things that a real follower does, a real disciple does. If we try to divide that more finely and say, well, there's a difference between a believer and a disciple. Okay, then how much do you have to believe to be a believer that's going to go to heaven but you're not going to be a disciple? Would you help me figure all this out? I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to protect yourself because you don't want to be a disciple. If you can show me in the grammar that we've made a mistake here, I'd look at it. But I know that John has already taught us leading through here that these weren't real believers. That the devil believes and trembles. That the Bible says it doesn't work. Did Paul teach in Romans chapter 10 that to show the evidence of eternal life, you have to believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus? Are they willing to confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus? No. They don't even know each other. You would think if they'd have talked just a little tiny bit, you think just a little kind of a text, just a little text while they were having some conspiracy to kill Jesus, and a little text, are you sure we're doing what's right? Could they have just done a little bit for them to know that a large part of the Sanhedrin was already elect, converted, justified, and on their way to heaven, ready to be missionaries? That isn't there. It is a dangerous interpretation to assume eternal life for any that are said to believe. Belief is not enough. So, it's just saying, though Israel was greatly blinded, there were some, opposite of that, that gave mental assent to Jesus Christ. But, they weren't ever going to be his disciples, because they weren't going to get thrown to the synagogue And they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So we're right back to the same situation. The nation was blinded from actually, truly believing on Jesus Christ to the confidence of salvation for their souls. Those that will be rejected by Christ surely had some some form of faith. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. They're going, to, they're going to address the Lord. They're going to call him Lord, but they don't have changed lives. So they had some form of faith. They didn't say, Hari Rama, Hari Rama. That's a Hindu God. That's my sweet Lord. That's George Harrison. That's 1970. I'm an old man with his mind full of junk. Mm-hmm. Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna. No, they said, Lord, Amen. Lord. So, I never knew you. We must reject any vestiges of Arminianism that promises eternal life for a decision. And that's right. why your mind is thinking the way... You see the word belief, and you automatically leap to the conclusion that this is sufficient for salvation, because as long as you can get a little momentary decision to somebody to believe on Jesus, Bang their names are written down in the book of life, and their signs sealed and delivered for heaven. But that is not what the Bible ever teaches anywhere. All the names of those that make it to heaven are written down before the foundation of the world. And God, in time, justifies them at the cross of Christ and then regenerates them. And when the Bible describes them, they have changed lives. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. See, I'm not going to take all those verses and blow them to the four winds of heaven to get a bunch of unconverted elect running around. I know where that doctrine came from. That doctrine came from the primitive Baptists. Can there be an unconverted elect? Yeah, the Bible gives us some examples, but it never ever tells us, suggests, or even by innuendo or implication, allows us an excuse for anyone other than where they plainly state it. Right. Otherwise, we end up with, listen, I've got somebody rubbing Buddha's belly, but they're doing it intensely. That's the zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. We could. I've heard it done. We must also reject any fatalism that mental assent without discipleship is salvation. So we want to stay away from both of those ditches. If we err in interpretation on any passage like this, we're going to err on the side of works that prove faith rather than election without works. Among the chief rulers also many believed on him. That's nevertheless what it was there for. Their belief was only mental assent, as I've tried to show you briefly. And we've had several of examples of those believers. In fact, I want to show you just quickly. We only have a few minutes. John chapter 8 and verse 30, we're going to get through Jesus' final words very quickly because he has three arguments to press the people in his final public words that they should believe on him. John chapter 8 and verse 30, as he spake these words, many believed on him. There we go again. Many believed on him. So we've got many believers. The whole nation's converting. no. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, I love this connection here, and don't, I hope you won't forget it. Right. We need to remember this. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed; and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? And Jesus continues to exchange with them about changed lives. And before he ends up, they want to kill him, and he tells them they are of your father the devil in verse 44. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. There's no breakdown through there in context. There's no paragraph symbol in your Bible, because, except there at verse 33, they answered him. We've got the they from verses 31 and 32. There's one of the examples. There's one of the four categories that John... Not like Matthew and Mark and Luke. Remember, we, when we look at a book of the Bible, we remember that God chose one writer for that book. And John wrote John. And John is the one that has told us about false believers. Right. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us. They don't deal with it like John does. So we've got this example. We go back to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and I mentioned this already, the last three verses, plus there's, one, uh, there's, a, there's a great example in John chapter 6, basically the whole chapter. By the time Jesus was done with them, they all turned and walked away. They didn't want anything to do with him. But boy, they sure did seek him. And they sure did want him to be their king. And they sure did believe on Jesus. Oh yeah, with a fish fillet still in your mouth. That's what they had. Wasn't there a lunch made up of loaves and fishes? It's a fish fillet. Verse 23 of John chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Wow. This is direct opposite of 1237. Because they saw the many miracles and they didn't believe. But this says they did believe. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And what was in man? Unbelief. Lack of commitment. No real embracing of Christ. No love and fear of God that would change their lives and allow them, cause them, direct them to leave the temple worship of, the, of Moses' system of religion and be persecuted by the Jews. They weren't going to do that for Jesus' cause. These are the examples that we've been led through on our way to John chapter 12. Their belief did not satisfy our Lord Jesus. I'm back to John 12. I'm not in John 2 and I'm not in John 8. I'm back at John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. Their belief did not satisfy our Lord Jesus Christ, for he pressed three arguments on them in the verses that follow about faith. And the Holy Spirit chose to connect these passages the way that these exchanges, the way that they are here in John chapter 12. Their belief did not produce confession and profession, which is what the Bible requires. Matthew 10, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. If you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. Their belief did not produce disciples willing to follow Jesus at a cost. If you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. They flunk, 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 flunk. They don't do anything except have the word be on their behalf. And so do the devils have the word be on their behalf. Their belief was compromised due to their fear of men and love of men over God. We do not find a crowd of these chief rulers could, if you think they're saved, what what did they do when Jesus was on trial? When this Jesus that they truly believed in was on trial for his life, why don't we read about anyone standing up to defend him? Well, because they were afraid. Afraid enough to watch him get murdered? You say, well, what about Peter? Peter was turned over to the devil. Do you know that that was an exceptional case? Right. Do you know that Jesus said that before the crucifixion? That's right. Satan hath desired to sift thee, Peter. But when thou art converted, I'm going to let him have you for a little while. You're going to go nuts. You want to tell everybody that you love me more than the rest of the disciples love me. That you will follow me even to death, even to prison. You want you want to say that? I'm going to tell you, Peter. I'm gonna let Satan have you for just a little while, and you're gonna die me three times before the crock even crows in the morning. You're not even gonna you're not even gonna last a few hours. If God had elect among these chief rulers or among these so-called believers, so be it. I'll leave that up to him. But I'm not gonna modify the whole Bible to accommodate unconverted elect everywhere. We maintain the general requirement of good works for salvation, which is taught everywhere else in the Bible. We cannot ignore John's context, denying faith as meaning anything on our way to this chapter. We cannot override the preponderance of New Testament doctrine to argue from the simple word belief with its wide usage, which John has corrected several times already. How about going to his first epistle? Do you think belief has any heavy weighting there? He that doeth righteousness is righteous. He that loveth his brother. And you're going to see a whole lot of other evidence brought forth there in 1 John. But because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess him. Do you know how much we can learn from this? These believers feared the Jewish fundamentalists and their rule that they would exclude Christians. So they feared that. The most conservative heretics will have stricter rules and appear more righteous, which which is true of the Pharisees. Liberals are always easier to deal with, for they do not have strict rules even for themselves. The Pharisees were the most conservative sect of the Jews' religion, and they gave Jesus and Paul the most pain. The Sadducees, the liberals among the Jews, were not as vicious in fighting heresy, including Christianity. We saw this situation earlier pop up in John chapter 9, when the parents of the man born blind did not want to answer when they were on trial about their son. They said, ask him, because they were afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. What hinders your faith and obedience? What hinders you? You want a happy family? You want everyone to get along? Where are you compromising because of that? Look at the peer pressure. They love the praise of men. Sometimes it's family, sometimes it's friends, sometimes it's colleagues. Fear of man brings a snare. That's taught to us in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25. Ambition and the pride it carries with elevated positions or rank destroy discipleship. These men had made their way in to the inner circle. They were chief rulers of the Jews. They were going to lose their position if they were to follow Christ. They could see the miracles. They could see this. They could see that. They could hear God's voice. They could see Lazarus as alive. What are we going to do? Everyone's going to follow him, but I'm not going to follow him. I'll lose my place. I won't have my income. I'll have to move from one subdivision to another. My kids won't have good schools. On and on it goes. Peer pressure is not just a temptation in junior high school. Consider these rulers. The desire to belong and be approved is great for those with small hearts for God. Earthly honors are hellish fetters. So it is best to stay humble and not desire fame because it will choke out the word of God. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. How much more famous and honored men? How many men have compromised truth to keep a place in a seminary with heresy? How many men being trained for the so-called ministry have compromised in seminary? How many ministers have compromised to maintain their position in a ministerial association How many commentators follow each other to avoid being rejected by a brotherhood of commentators? It is shocking to watch them copy each other. Baptists have always been despised. John, Jesus, and the apostles were despised because they were Baptists. Any man with a sincere mind looking at the word of God knows there is no infant sprinkling in the Bible. Period. There isn't the slightest case to support it, even indirectly. But there he looks at it. He searches the scriptures, and he cannot find a single example of an infant ever being given anything like baptism. And baptism by sprinkling doesn't show us a symbol or a sign of anything, so it's not scriptural. Every baptism in the New Testament is down into the water for both the one administering the baptism and the one receiving it and back up out of the water. It has to show a burial. It has to show a resurrection over and over again, it is said. And a man who's in one of the denominations coming out of the Church of Rome that still hold her baptism sees it in the New Testament and he realizes, if I were to go join the Baptists, I will be ridiculed by the seminary that I went to. I'll be ridiculed by all my ministerial associates. I will be part of these despised, off-scouring of the earth, stinking, low-class Baptists. And they won't do it. And so they go blindly on, feeding everyone the Roman Catholic lie of infant sprinkling and call it a sacrament. Sacrament. You know how strict we want to be about that? We don't even want to say that we have as a church two ordinances. Right, right. Because you know where that numbering system comes from? Really? This. Mm-hmm. And we make the mistake very easily to, to say that a Baptist church has two ordinances, but the Bible never does that. Right. Like I wrote you in an update recently, if anything, we should pick three. Right. Because of 1 John 5.8. But we shouldn't pick that at all because anything God commands is an ordinance. Therefore, we have a whole lot of ordinances Amen. to keep as a church. Mm-hmm. But what I did you just hear what I just told you? And here we are, despised Baptists, meeting in our little despicable facilities. But we have the truth of the Bible and we're just like John. Amen. He went down into the Jordan and he took Jesus right down to the Jordan with him. And they came up out of the Jordan. John, John the Baptist baptized in Anan near to Salem in John chapter 3 and verse 23. Why did he baptize in Aen and near the Salem Orville? There was much water there. Because there was much water there. Mm-hmm. Drinking water? Mm-hmm. Sewer, water for the sewer system? Enough to immerse. Plenty to immerse. Why did, Jesus, why did John the Baptist baptize in a place called Bethabara? In the Jordan River? What does it mean? The ford of the Jordan. What's a ford? where You can walk across the river and it's only waist deep. How deep does a Baptist pastor want the water to be? 12 feet? <laughs> or waist deep ah, On it. Ah. The point I'm trying to make is, mental ascent. you ought to read John Kelvin. John Kelvin knew that it was by immersion. Yep, yep. All the fathers knew it was by immersion. but if you wanted to admit immersion, then you had to join the Baptists and you had to say that the Roman Catholic Church was the abomination of, of uh, Re- Revelation and the great whore, and that you were a daughter church that had come out of her, so you are part of her system, and so they didn't do it. Now, I'm just using that as an example because of what we have right here. These men, in certain ways, believed on Jesus, but they were not going to confess him because they would lose their denominational standing with the Sanhedrin, with the Jews, and they wouldn't do it because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. How many men? We don't know. It's between God and them, and we don't really care. Right. But you can read some of them. You can read some of them admit that the ancient practice of baptism was always immersion. Right. Yep. How could the Jews do this to Jesus? Why did the Jews' most conservative sect hate him? The simple answers of envy and exposure of their hypocrisy are true, but not the best answers. The best answer is this. The enmity between Satan and Christ, darkness and light, and the enmity between evil and good is the better answer. And it's been here since Cain and Abel. And I preached it to you last Lord's Day. Cain killed Abel. Why? Because Abel was good. There is war going on in this world, and it's between good and evil. And I don't mean good and evil is defined by the Almanac or by our Constitution or by any government agency. I mean good and evil is defined by the Bible, where Jesus Christ is good and Satan is evil, and those with Christ are good and those with Satan are evil. The world and worldly Christians will do this to a church if it truly stands for Christ. The stronger our stand for Christ, the more the world will hate us. The stronger your families stand for Christ, the more the world will hate you. The more your personal stand for Christ the more the world will hate you. It says that. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jesus was the ultimate strong stand for righteousness and they hated him. him. And if we'll stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we don't try to be different, we try to be loving, we try to be friendly, they're going to hate us. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. What a terrible thing. What a terrible thing to have written about you. Do you remember the emperor's new clothes? Remember that little child story, Hans Christian Andersen? What was the threat by the uh, clothes designers that came and worked up the invisible clothes for the king? What was the threat? If you can't see his beautiful new outfit, what's the threat? You are unfit for your job and stupid. I wish I could meet that author. There's baptism. You see it? You say immersion. I mean, you say you say sprinkling. Sprinkling infants is what I'm going to do. It's like looking at that emperor. He's naked in the street. Oh, it's beautiful. Beautiful clothes, king. Yes, king. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for showing us your new outfit. That's looking in the word of God and coming up with infant sprinkling. And why do they do it? Because if they don't see infant sprinkling in the New Testament, they're unfit for their jobs and they're stupid. And men don't want to be fit for their jobs because they want to keep that because it keeps cash flowing into their pockets and they don't want to be stupid. And that's what was happening right here. They did not want to be thrown to the synagogue because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. I'm going to finish in less than five minutes. And I'm sorry. Sorry. I turned this pulpit over a number of times and it will always be turned over. But we're going to finish right now. This is Jesus' response. Three arguments, and they are intense, against the Jews for not believing. Three arguments. Two verses, one verse, and then four verses. It's one section. Let me take it one one piece at a time. There's two verses, then one verse, then four verses, three arguments. These are Jesus' last public words. They are intense and they are condemning because the Jews did not believe on him and he hurled this at them when he finished his preaching to them. Because chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 is him with his apostles. Chapter 17 is his prayer to his father, probably in Gethsemane and 18 through 20 is his crucifixion, and then he appeared to his apostles after that. Here we go. First argument. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me. Are you able to handle that kind of terminology? I know that some of you may be questioning what I did to the word nevertheless. Can you handle this? He that believeth on me... Believeth not on me. Which is true. Yes. They're both true. Get used to the Bible. It likes to do this to you. Pray for me. It runs me to the... I love him, and I love every word in his Bible. This tells me that when I use an absolute statement with relative effect you should submit to it and accept it and not worry about it. Because Jesus did that. Use an absolute statement like, he that believeth on me does not believe on me, does not only believe on me, is the sense of that middle clause. He that believeth on me believeth not just on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. When a person truly saw Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, they just didn't see Jesus of Nazareth. They saw God Jehovah through him. Right. And that Jesus had taught that all the way along, and I don't have time for the verses to share with you. These are three arguments that are intense, and they're to you and to me right now. How much do we believe on Jesus Christ? How much do we love him? These are his final words in public. This is to his church that he was about to desert and turn their vineyard over to the Romans to have it leveled in 70 AD and turn to the Gentiles through his apostles, especially Paul. Argument number one, if you reject me, you are rejecting my father in heaven. If you believe on me, you're believing on that God you claim to love so much. That monotheistic religion that you have of worshiping Jehovah of Moses, I am his son, and if you believe on me, you're believing on him. If you don't believe on me, you are not believing on Jehovah. Argument number one, that is weighty. That is powerful, and it's short. Number two is in verse 46. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If you believe on me, you will be saved from the darkness of this world to the light that I give through my gospel. If you don't believe on me, you will be subject to the darkness of this world and you will not have the light of my gospel. Argument number one, believing on Jesus Christ is to make a statement about the God of heaven. Believing on Jesus Christ is to make a statement about light or darkness and how you want to spend your life. Verses 47 through 50 are, I am not going to judge you right now because I didn't come into the world to do it, and you're not important enough for that. I have more important business than that to take care of, that I'm going to take care of, and I'm going to go to heaven, and the light's going to be gone. But I want to tell you something. The words that I have spoken to you, and the words that I am speaking to you right now, they will be held against you in the great day of judgment. And the last word of verse 48 is day, because it's referring to that great day of judgment. In the last day. Here are the words. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. I didn't come into this world to judge, John 3 17. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. That was my purpose, primary purpose of my first coming. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself. But the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. God commanded everything that I have taught, and God's commandment is eternal life. To believe what I have taught, and he taught discipleship, then you are showing that you have eternal life. If you don't hear my words, I don't have time for you right now. I'm done. My public ministry is ending right now. And I'm going to go have supper with my apostles, and I'm going to tell Judas to hurry up and go do what you got to do. Hurry up. What thou doest, do quickly. Right. Let me get this show on the road. I have more important things to do than to judge you but I want to tell you the words that I've spoken unto you. They will judge you in the great day of judgment. Three arguments to believe. How important is Jesus Christ to us as we walk out of here today? They loved God, Jehovah. We love to sing hallelujah, praise Jehovah. If we love the Jehovah of the Bible, then we will love his son and we will believe on his son. If you are going to mock the darkness of this world on any level, on any subject, then the light of the gospel is something you should believe in, and it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one that brought us light. Every word that you have heard of the gospel that tells you you ought to change something in your life and you don't do it, you'll be judged for it in the great day of judgment. Jesus Christ is a crucial matter. Faith in Jesus Christ is a crucial matter. What's the second word of verse 44, that verb? Jesus cried! And said, Jesus cried. What a savior. What a preacher. What a preacher. He went out in a blaze of glory. He cried three things. You don't want me. You're rejecting Jehovah. And you know what he does to his enemies. You don't want me. Do you know how dark this world is? You're going to be in that darkness. You don't want me in the words that I've taught. They're going to come back to haunt you in the great day of judgment. Let's not let any of those things be true of us. Let us adore God our Father by loving his Son and believing his gospel. Let us embrace the light of the gospel. If we're going to mock the darkness, let's embrace the light by embracing Jesus Christ. And let us prepare for the great day of judgment by obeying what Jesus taught us. Do you know what Jesus taught at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He that heareth my sayings and believeth them... Is like a man that built his house on a rock. Right. And the storm came. And I want to tell you what that storm is at the end of Matthew chapter 7. It's not the little bit of rain we had last night. It's the great day of judgment. And the house will stand. Amen. Because we're built on a foundation of obeying the gospel of Christ. Right. Amen, Many of you here have come out of other churches. Come out of other families. You love the praise of God more than the praise of men. Right. I praise you. For that choice, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.